Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. Um, today's program is entitled For Caregivers, Practical Tips to Cope with Your Loved One's Bladder Cancer. And this is part two of a two-part series of Living with Bladder Cancer. And uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, and we're delighted to have them as a collaborating group on today's program. We also have a number of other cancer organizations that um, are collaborating with us um, on this program today. Um, and um, But I especially want to call out to Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network because they are the, the only group that actually does focus specifically on bladder cancer um, as, a, um, as an advocacy organization. Now, because of all of that, um, the collaboration and your interest in the topic today, we have over 422 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, so from different parts of the United States, from rural and suburban and um, um, and urban areas as well. And um, we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, the Philippines, Singapore, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by EMD Serrano, a grant from Genentech, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today and also for their uh, collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Matthew Campbell. Dr. Campbell is Assistant Professor, Department of Genital Urinary Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Campbell is going to address the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, helping to manage your loved one's treatment, and adherence and follow-up care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Campbell. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and it's my honor to, to be with you all today. And this is, you know, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart as I, my clinic uh, involves seeing a tremendous number of patients that are dealing with bladder cancer, but also with their family that is helping support them through this, this fight and this battle. As a medical oncologist, the majority of patients that I see with bladder cancer have the more aggressive type that has invaded um, into the muscle layer of the wall or has already spread uh, to either lymph nodes or to, to distant organs. Um, and so I'm seeing patients that have often had to undergo um, surgery early on in their uh, disease course with the removal of the bladder or are seeing me with consideration to receive chemotherapy or at times uh, immunotherapy on a protocol prior to removal of the bladder. Um, I have been beginning to see more patients that have the more superficial variety of bladder cancer where the treatment often remains using treatments with inside the bladder itself, such as scraping the cancer or by giving medicines within the bladder trying to prevent the cancer from returning. But what I've really witnessed is this, this major spectrum, but there's a lot of similarities that patients have. And so initially when most patients are diagnosed with bladder cancer, there's a change in their urinary habits, um, 
that their spouses at times notice because patients are having to wake up more often. Um, uh, caregivers can consist of, of spouses, can consist of adult children, uh, close friends, uh, or relatives. And so oftentimes they can notice that there's been a change that helps to notify uh, the patient that they need to seek medical attention. Uh, once patients have begun treatment, whether that's treatment within the bladder, whether it's chemotherapy, whether it's undergoing surgery with removal of the bladder itself, the caregivers play very important roles in terms of, of helping, you know, with day-to-day -day discussions with the patients in terms of how they're feeling, notice changes that the patients themselves may not be aware of but are concerning. Um, I often get calls from providers saying, or from caregivers that notify me that, that patients are, are noticing that they're experiencing more pain or discomfort or they're having more blood in their urine or they're having more difficulty uh, with sleeping or they're having body image issues post-surgery. And so there's a whole spectrum. And so caregivers serve as, as hugely important from a support network also with help with communication uh, to providers, uh, note-taking, helping be an extra set of eyes and ears if questions do emerge that aren't necessarily remembered at the time of the visit. They can often uh, speak up and have at times even a list of questions that the, the patient and themselves have been wanting to ask. And I, I think that is very helpful because oftentimes when patients are in front of the physician, um, and the physician has done the examination and has done some of the talking in terms of the plan, when they ask if there's any questions, uh, we often see that patients at times go blank and they forget the questions that they were wanting to ask and having a caregiver there by their side to help help them remember those questions or ask the questions themselves is tremendously valuable. Um, in terms of managing uh, your loved one's treatment, I think keeping somewhat of a diary of what a patient is experiencing in terms of things that are either troublesome or um, are, are issues that are emerging. And this can be uh, even from the standpoint of, of interpersonal relationships with your loved one. It can be also um, how uh, a patient is adapting or having how they're accepting chemotherapy uh, within the bladder or through the vein how they're tolerating, uh, you know, how they're recovering from surgery. Are they having major issues adjusting uh, to their uh, their new body and their how they are accepting and coping with what is going on? And then are they having any new, obviously concerning issues that need to be made aware and, and go and seek emergent medical attention? And so uh, to me that diary can be invaluable when patients and their spouse come in or their, their loved one or their friend or whoever it is who is coming with them comes and says, you know, this was a major change that we noticed. We started having uh, a, a patient begin to lose appetite or, or have uh, a low-grade fever or have a change in the color of their urine or whatever it may be that can be very helpful in terms of trying to understand uh, how quickly something is developing or if it is more chronic in nature and, and what we can do to address it. In terms of adherence and follow-up care, you know, this is a type of cancer where it is absolutely imperative to try to remain on schedule for treatments. 
and you know having somebody to help drive uh, back and forth between treatments, whether it's treatment within the bladder itself or it's chemotherapy or or post-surgical checkups, having somebody available to be able to make the scheduled follow-ups is very important because we've learned that keeping people on the optimal time, whether they're receiving BCG, which is treatment within the bladder, receiving chemotherapy, or receiving a surgery post-chemotherapy, or on the other side of the coin, receiving uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy after uh, bladder removal, keeping keeping uh, the schedule is very important to have the best outcome possible. Um, I'm a huge advocate with bladder cancer as it is a very specialized field um, for patients to consider uh, if, if they're unsure of the treatment plan, uh, consideration of second opinions on with people and urologists that manage a lot of this because there are places that, that do uh, a huge volume of, of taking care of patients with bladder cancer, which means they treat a large number, many patients per month. And there's um, oftentimes a reluctance in the community, especially when there's a need to remove the bladder to take on those, those cases because they tend to be more challenging. And so I think going to places that have a lot of experiences uh, taking care of bladder cancer is always a good idea. And uh, with that, I, I'm, I will remain on the call, and I'm more than happy to answer questions as we get toward the end of the program. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful way to start the program and to give all this, the information and, and just the, stressing the important role of the caregiver and also the treatment and, and of course, um, and if at all possible, trying to go to those major centers that, that really specialize in the treatment of bladder cancer. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is um, both a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. So she has many different um, expertise areas. And she's going to be addressing what research tells us about caregivers, stresses, challenges, and rewards of caregiving, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and coping with holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and special occasions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Bester, for that introduction, and thank you, Dr. Campbell, for your excellent overview on the importance of communication between the patient, the caregivers, and the healthcare team. Today, I'm going to focus on three questions um, to try to summarize those four points that uh, Dr. Messner just mentioned I would address. The first is, what is the impact of cancer on the physical and mental health on the patient and the caregivers? The second would be, how can families bring a sense of balance back into their lives and maintain their own health and wellness? And the third uh, question I'd like to address is, when is the time to seek support or help, and then from whom? So we know the research indicates that families in today's world no longer fit the traditional model of mom, pop, sister, brother, and the dog rover. Families are diverse in numerous ways. Today, nuclear and extended families are non-traditional. Today's families often live great distances from each other, even when living in the same city. So our research indicates that families re react to a cancer diagnosis depending on how they faced other challenging times in the past. No doubt, family roles, routines, and responsibilities change when someone in the family is diagnosed with cancer, and these roles, ro routines, and responsibilities will change across the 
trajectory of the cancer experience. That is, someone who's newly diagnosed with a, a bladder cancer or another type of cancer, is, their needs are going to differ very much from someone who is in active treatment or someone who is considered a survivor um, who has already completed their curative treatment. What we have found, though, in a, is that in today's world, cancer care is often provided at home. Family members then become the ultimate caregivers in assisting patients with everyday tasks. They often exchange roles with uh, a primary head of household at times and performing certain duties and having certain responsibilities. And they often are asked to perform uh, medical procedures, which can be very um, challenging at times. So let's talk about who is a caregiver very briefly. Caregiver is often a confusing term. That term is used um, to describe professional health care providers who care for us when we are ill. In today's discussion, as you may have already summarized, this term will be used to describe an informal caregiver. That is a person who can provide physical, practical, or emotional health, or a combination of all of these aspects, to survivors and patients in the home or other health care setting with no pay or compensation. In short, Caregivers are the people who help a person diagnosed with cancer with their day-to-day -day activities, such as bathing, getting dressed, preparing food. Caregivers can be family, friends, and at times strangers. That is, someone maybe you meet through a faith-based organization or someone from a local organization um, that helps um, our caregivers and patients. Caregivers can be teams of caregivers so that one person isn't being depended upon to do everything at one time. As I said, the caregiver's roles and responsibility will change depending on which phase of the cancer experience the patient is in. It, it will change whether they're in active treatment, as I mentioned, whether or not it's uh, disease-free, long-term survivors, or those that live with cancer as a chronic disease. The research tells us because of the combined effects of the disease and side effects associated with their treatment, Patients with urological cancer, such as in the bladder, kidney, or prostate, have an increased change of having changes in their personality, which can lead to relationship problems, anxiety, depression, and sometimes post-traumatic stress syndrome. All changes for the patient, which will definitely have an impact on the caregiver's responsibilities and their overall health. So let's focus for a moment on caregivers and see what the science tells us about the emotional and physical effects that caregivers may encounter. Early studies looking at caregiver burden, and I'll define that in just a moment, found that providing emotional support for patients was the most demanding activity. So the emotional aspects that a caregiver um, faces or the challenges that a caregiver faces are basically or primarily due to emotional. However, some other research indicates that certain patient tasks have more effect on contributing to caregiver burden. For example, when someone has to help with the personal care or help with transporting someone to, to patients' appointments and things of, the, of that nature, these were associated with a higher emotional burden for caregivers. The top three activities that caregivers, in one study that was conducted, the top three activities that caregivers said they would like to know more about were helping patients deal with their own feelings, again, emotions about cancer, watching for infections, and managing side effects. Many researchers have identified that the strain um, of um, that they have recognized the immense strain that uh, is placed on the caregivers. Some studies indicate that the physical effects of this strain, not just the emotional, but the physical effects will include fatigue, sleep disturbances, and a general impact on worsening the general health of the caregiver. 
Again, other studies indicate that caregivers experience the anxiety and stress and depression associated with being a caregiver. The combination of these physical and emotional effects lead to a condition referred to as caregiver burden. This condition is defined as an imbalance of care demands compared to the caregiver's time, personal time, social roles, physical and emotional states, financial resources, formal care resources, and all the other roles. Caregivers are often not only a caregiver, they're working full-time, they're mom, they're dad, they um, are brother, sister, um, and, uh, mom, you know, it's just so many multiple roles that they're juggling, and then along with all these other tasks, it really increases the impact of this caregiving burden. So now you listeners may realize that, oh, yes, it is challenging to be a caregiver, but it's important for caregivers to, ma to realize that there are ways to manage the stress and some of the challenges that go along with this. And this is particularly important when we're going to be going through special occasions or um, like what will be coming up um, in the next few weeks or even when spring breaks it just passed away. So I'm going to, in the next few moments, identify strategies for being proactive and planning ahead for those special occasions. So let's begin by discussing ways to manage the chaos associated with these special times. One helpful strategy is to develop a special occasion preparedness plan. This plan would be similar to a hurricane preparedness plan. It would map out the details of how to prepare for those special events. The plan would allow the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their roles when they're trying to care for a loved one during special times, and especially if they may live uh, far away from the caregiver. Dr. Messner will address that in just a moment. So here's a few tips that can be included in your plan and will help you to be proactive and prepared. The first important thing is determine what can realistically be done. Create a stable and realistic role uh, as, a, as a caregiver during these special occasions. Determine the roles of each family member. I, guess, I think one basic question that's important to ask yourself, and you can sit down with a piece of paper and just brainstorm on this, who could be caregivers? You might want to identify first the family members that you know immediately would be there. Then maybe you can extend it out to friends, and then perhaps to neighbors, and then on to the folks from your church, uh, local organizations, local uh, civic groups that you may belong to. It's good to find out who those available resources are people are, the team of people, and then you can identify roles for each one of them. Everyone has some strengths that are and talents that will be helpful to you, and they will be willing to become, I'm sure, if, you, if asked and given the opportunity to become a member of your team. Be informed, and we heard Dr. Campbell talk about this. Maintain close communication with the patient's providers and helpers, and if need be, schedule a regular time to call and talk to them. Always have ready-to-go bags packed. These would include your medical supplies needed, extra clothing, copies of important documents such as copies of prescriptions, contact numbers of your health care providers, and members of your, family team, of your family team. Trying to pack for a vacation or a travel is chaotic enough without having to worry about items needed to provide continuity of care for your loved one. These ready-to-go packs are needed for the patient and the caregiver. And it seems that no matter how much, despite all the bags we may have, we may want to, we often forget things, and most likely it will be the caregiver who gets their own needs in this. I, we heard Dr. Campbell talk about uh, a diary uh, or a logbook, but the logbook would be a bit different from a diary because there you would record any conversations with other caregivers, the providers, insurers, anyone that you, is involved in this whole journey that you're going through so you can keep track of who you spoke to, when, and what the outcome was. Keep these numbers helpful. Make a list uh, of, of 
excuse me, keep these numbers available. So make a list of everyone who is involved in the care of your loved one and give that list to as many different people on the team as you can. I always recommend to uh, our patients and caregivers, uh, you can put one on the refrigerator, keep one, you know, give them out to your friends. Just keep a lot of copies available because you never know who's going to be a member of your team eventually. One of the things that I think is very helpful is that you can prepare your own video clips of past holidays that you've had or special occasions. These clips provide a snapshot of memories from the past, and you can share them with your loved ones during the future um, occasions that you will have. You can create new traditions. Even if you cannot be there in person, and we'll, again, talk about long-distance caregiving in a moment, it's good to have uh, other activities become new traditions for you, your loved one, and your family. So my colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions you may have for our other caregivers that are here. And I thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was wonderful. And actually, Dr. Palos has suggested we're going to have, um, surely we're going to have your comments and questions. And we do welcome also your comments. I know Dr. Palos always recommends this, that you all suggest things that work for you, tips that you'd like to share um, that have worked for you or just comments you'd like to make that, um, that you have found particularly helpful. So I'm just going to address a few topics that are really important topics for each of you. One is the topic of long-distance caregiving. The other is remembering to take care of yourself. And then also some self-care and stress management tips. So to start off, and Dr. Palos has mentioned, the long-distance caregiver, who is that? So in our world that we live in today, so many of you live um, far away from the person that you love and want to take care of. And, and far away can be living across town from someone where it takes you an hour to get there, an hour and a half with traffic, or it could be in another state or even another country. So the question is, you often feel like, oh, I'm so far away, how can I help? But you know, distance... We often think of distance as being so that we're just not right next door to someone. But, you know, with all of our technology today, we can pick up the telephone and call somebody. We can send them a text message. We can use Skype. We can use all types of technology to reach someone, even to send them a note each day or every a couple of days, um, even using mail um, or a postcard. Um, so there are many ways that you can let someone know that you're, that you're thinking of them all the time. And then as a long-distance caregiver, you also can stay in touch emotionally. And, you know, many of us, of course, talk to people we, who may, may live right nearby us on the telephone. And so the telephone um, or, um, you know, is, a, is an amazing – we're on the telephone today or some of you are listening to this as live streaming. There are many technologies that allow you to actually have a conversation with somebody that you care about and reminding them about their appointment tomorrow, reminding them about – um, perhaps their medication, taking their medications, um, reminding them about some of the questions they may want to ask in their appointment. And you actually can, some of you do, can arrange to actually be, even though you're far away, arrange to be present during an appointment that's, that's far away with the healthcare team. They can arrange a logistical way that you can be present um, um, through, through technology during that appointment. So don't underestimate the um, ability of your being there um, all the time when, someone, when you're concerned about someone. Um, you also can help uh, to remind people about the questions that they can ask. And there's something so important about you know, going through that with somebody, again, through a text message, through an email. That's a very important way of helping um, and to staying in touch with, um, you know, with uh, being a long-distance caregiver. 
Um, so all the things that you can do when you're right there are things you can do when you're far away as well. There, there is um, distance doesn't doesn't prevent one from letting someone know how much you care about them and and that you're you're there. Um, um, if not physically, you're there um, with them emotionally, and you're there with them uh, in, in so many. They're thinking about them all the time. Now, caregivers often are so wrapped up in taking care of the person. Um, who they love, who's ill, that they forget about themselves. And so I just want to put a plug in, I think all of us have, to really remember to take care of yourself. And that means that you have a right to have time to yourself. You do want to keep up with your own medical appointments, even though you'll think that's the last thing you want to do. It, it's very important. And, you know, when you're on an air, air flight, in an airplane, they often tell you to first you know, um, take care of yourself in an emergency before you try to help the person next to you. And it's very much the same here. You really do want to be sure that you're in good shape before you try to take care of someone else. So that it's really important to have those appointments, to try to take in enough fluids during the day, to try to eat, he- eat as healthily as possible, to take that walk um, each day, um, you know, to think about yourself. It's, it's okay to do that. You have our permission and everyone's permission to do that. And in terms of self-care and, and stress management tips, there are so many things out there to help you. Um, you can Many people join a support group. I know at Cancer Care, um, we have over 120 online support groups, and many people find those very helpful in, um, you know, because you may be up in the middle of the night worrying about somebody to being a part of a support group that's online. Um, that has no geographic boundaries so that you can listen, you can be on a, on an online support group with people from all over the world and get that support, or a telephone support group, or a face-to-face group. Um, also, for those of you who are still working, you do have protections under the Family Medical Leave Act, and so very much um, these are you have rights to take some time off here for yourself to, to take care, take a family member to a medical appointment. That's really important to be aware of. Um, so it's just uh, so important to really. Um, to practice also stress management tips. Some people will actually take a moment to breathe. Um, That's really important. Or to take a moment uh, to actually um, do a little bit of meditation. And people join meditation. And while many of the nonprofit groups offer meditation and visualization um, support groups, or you can do them on the telephone with them or online, it just gives you a chance to just have some time to yourself. Or if there's a favorite hobby that you like to do, um, perhaps some time to just perhaps you have a favorite book you like to read or you like to knit or you like to um, just have some time to think or look at pictures, things that really make you give you some pleasure. And it's okay to do those things while you're being a caregiver. It's very okay and it's important for your own well-being. So we really encourage you to really remember to take care of yourself. And we'll probably say more about that during the Q&A as well. Um, and I just want to say a word about cancer care services. We do offer... Um, free support services and free counseling services. Um, we offer, uh, we're a national organization, and so we provide support groups and we provide um, um, telephone online support groups. We also um, offer um, financial assistance and practical help with some of the needs of transportation and needs for care. So that's a, a nice resource to all have. And um, now it's my pleasure to turn the program back, back over to one of our other speakers, Dr. Stephanie Chisholm. Dr. Chisholm is Director of Education and Research, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN. And Dr. Chisholm is going to present to you the free um, 
programs of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. And it's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Chisholm. Thank you so much. You know, at Beacon, we often refer to the caregivers as co-survivors because bladder cancer has a very high rate of recurrence. It needs active monitoring, and it does have a great deal of stigma still associated with it, not so much about the disease itself, but people have some real phobias about talking about urination and bladders and all of those things. And so it's definitely got a direct impact. We know that treatments can really impact body image and even sexuality and the role in the family for the patient as well as for the caregiver when you have to be involved with them on that kind of an intimate level to help take care of whatever treatments they may have. And so it's really important to remind a caregiver first to always consider patient input as treatment decisions are being made and make sure that the patient is involved in those decisions. I think that that's really important. I know that um, Carolyn mentioned some of the support community there. And at our Inspire Bladder Cancer community, we have both patients and caregivers. And I think people that have joined that community have found a great deal of good information and very kind support. We've got moderators in there to make sure that, you know, it stays a positive place. But it's a really good resource that you can access through our website, www.bcan.org. And then we have a number of other resources. We have a survivor-to-survivor program, which really focuses, again, thinking about a caregiver as being a co-survivor on matching somebody, a patient or a caregiver with someone in a very similar situation. So feel free to give us a call if you're interested in doing um, a call with one of our volunteers that are trained. We've just recently put out a new immunotherapy animated video, and in it I think it's a wonderful depiction of the role of the caregiver. The wife in this video is actively taking notes. She's actively asking questions and very much involved in the care. So it's a really good model, again, because four years are always better than two to be involved in those treatment discussions with the healthcare provider and take notes so that you always have a record of what's going on. For people who have issues with body image and sexuality, we have a booklet online called Say Something that features Mary Lou Henner and talking about having some of the difficult conversations that are related to body image or blood in your urine or even sexuality issues. And then we have a number of webinars, including a webinar on being a proactive patient that can absolutely apply to caregivers. And we've got programs on um, dealing with the tough conversations that are surrounding end-of-life decisions because that's a huge burden for caregivers as well. So I encourage people to look on our website, beaconbcan.org, or give us a call at 888-901-BCAN. Oh, thank you so much, Duchess, and that was really wonderful. It's a wonderful resource for everyone to access on this call. Um, just a wonderful organization, and um, I um, 
I, I can't um, uh, encourage you enough to take advantage of that, those services. And also at the end of the call, um, you'll all be getting an evaluation um, probably tomorrow for the program, and that will include all the resources we mentioned with the websites, and um, so you'll have that information at your fingertips as well. Um, so there will be a hard copy of that coming to you, well, actually either by email or um, or actually by um, uh, so for those who have registered um, by mail, you'll get a, a paper packet as well. Um, and so now I want to thank our speakers. We now have time for questions, and um, we have lots of time for questions. And so I'm going to ask um, Ayala to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board now, and we're going to try to take as many questions as possible. And if we don't get to your questions, I'll explain at the end how you can get your questions answered. So but let's start now and see how many questions we can take. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a question from one of our online participants. And, um, and I'm going to ask Dr. Um, Campbell if you could take this first question. Um, and others may add to it if they wish. Um, but to start, um, my grandfather will be undergoing neobladder surgery. He is a healthy and 71-year-old, 71 years old. What should we expect when it comes to providing care for him after treatment? So, Dr. Campbell, if you could start with that one. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and you know the the care following uh, bladder removal, whether it's a neobladder that's placed whether it's um, an ileal conduit, which uh, comes with uh, a urinary uh, bag, uh, or whether it's the Indiana pouch, which is a catheterizable channel. Uh, those are the three most common ways that, that the bladder is diverted. And, you know, I, I rely heavily on the urology team that decides on what's going to be likely the best approach. And some patients have multiple approaches that can be uh, used. Um, but in my experience, I basically see what happens post-surgery, and neobladders can be absolutely wonderful, and they will quote you different numbers in terms of the rate of patients being completely um, dry, meaning that there's no leakage of urine uh, at typically six months post-procedure, and then the rate of being completely dry at night. And those numbers tend to be quite different because, you know, naturally uh, men have the, the prostate most commonly in place that helps as a uh, control mechanism to help prevent leakage uh, of urine. And that's part of the removal process of removing the bladder in men is also removing the prostate. And so you have to completely retrain your body in terms of how to control um, your bladder. And so I think the biggest recommendation that I have for patients and their families that under, have a, a person undergo that procedure is just be very patient. And if there are questions, I would I would ask the urologist about what to expect. Is this normal? Are we on the right track? And expect gradual improvement. And it's, and it's an improvement that can, can go on for many months, and it's not a uh, an off-and-on switch that is required. Um, if there's persistent leakage, there are additional procedures that at times can be entertained uh, with experts, and that includes considerations of placing devices such as an artificial sphincter. Um, but these are very complicated procedures, and I would really encourage uh, patients to seek very expert opinions 
uh, should that be an issue. But I will say that when they have done evaluations, you know, six months post-procedure, uh, the majority of, of patients have at this time become used to their new uh, urinary device. Uh, and the scores of happiness tends to be very similar between neobladders and ileal conduits in Indiana pouches. So I would have a long conversation with your urology team about what's the best fit for me and, you know, what is my personality? Am I a very patient person or am I a person that uh, wants to see results immediately? And uh, I'm happy to take any other questions in, in that vein. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And does anyone wish to add to that? Um... Excellent. Very well, very well answered. I have to say that's a and a very important question and um, and and an excellent guide in terms of who who is the person in terms of what what is their preference in terms of um, um, resolving this quickly or being able to work over time. That's that's a. Do you want to say more about that? That's really important, Dr. Campbell, that people have these choices to kind of express to their healthcare team. Yeah, and I, you know, if. Did you ask Carolyn for me to give some yes. more information there? Yes. Yeah. So I, Please. It, to me, the so the ileal conduit to me is is the most um, rapidly uh, for patients to become adapted to what's going on. Most patients by six weeks uh, to three months have discovered the devices that work best for them. There are several companies that make ostomy equipment. Um, I have many patients that have tried multiple techniques, uh, multiple companies, multiple different, and then they, they settle on what really works for them. So normally by the time I'm seeing them, um, six weeks, three months post-surgery, they, they feel comfortable with uh, urostomy. And if they don't, I'm sending them to our urostomy team here for further evaluation and, and tips and tricks. And it's amazing how, you know, patients often in our waiting room will talk to each other about different tips and tricks, and they can be hugely helpful uh, to one another. So I think patient advocacy groups is, is a huge value for, for patients and their loved ones. Neobladders, it's just, it, it's, it can be absolutely wonderful, but it just tends to take more time. And I would encourage, you know, patients to not expect to be completely dry, even by three months. And most patients do require to wear a pad at nighttime um, because at nighttime you relax uh, all of your muscles and there's a higher rate of potential leakage. Some people uh, become completely dry. Other people, unfortunately, do have to self-catheterize, uh, and other patients do have uh, constant leaking. And so there is more variability in terms of outcome uh, after a neobladder as compared to an ileal conduit um, or an Indiana pouch. Excellent. Thank you. That's excellent. Um, and um, we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, and uh, I'm going to direct this question to um, uh, to Dr. Palos. Uh, my mother is living with us now. I love her so much. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm resentful that my siblings are not helpful at all. They spend time with her occasionally, but they always are doing some, some things that are they are always they always doing seem to be doing things that are memorable and fun. I take care of the day to day things. I feel guilty for being resentful. What what should I do? Doctor Palos, do you have any suggestions in terms of um how she might handle this? Sure. I well I, I think one of the first things I want to say that those are very normal feelings that she, uh this person is voicing or sharing with us. Um, you know, when one person is a primary caregiver 
and sees what's going on on a day-to-day basis and gets in, into that routine, it, it is hard, and that's where we get concerned with our caregiver burden and the emotional stress that it's putting on them, as well as the physical stress. I mean, we just heard Dr. Campbell talk about all the little details that go along with the care of having all the certain devices and procedures related to bladder cancer, so it does take a toll. The expectation that a fam- that all families are going to uh, jump in together and support each other when a loved one is diagnosed with cancer doesn't always come to um, the happy terms that we want it to be. Remember what I said, uh, when cancer is diagnosed, um, the family is going to react to that diagnosis the way they have it with challenges in the past. So one of the things that might be helpful is to sit back and just think, okay, if my family is not going to be supportive of this, who else can I turn to? Um, You don't want to get to a point um, where you're just so, your physical and emotional health are just so frazzled that it's going to make you not only more resentful, but it can also then with all of that have have an impact on your own physical health. So you want to try to think of some proactive things before you get to that point. So one of the things would be to just sit down. Remember, I think I, I recommended an exercise of talking about in that inner circle, you have the family. The next ring of circle would be friends. The next ring of circle would be um, folks in, in the neighborhood. Uh, the next one, then faith-based organizations or um, advocacy groups, as, as was mentioned earlier by our other speakers. I think one thing that's important that uh, sometimes folks forget, I'm sure your mom also has a ring of uh, friends that have supported her. At times, they may even be willing to come in and and, uh, give some respite care or to help in some ways. So I think one of the first things to do is first acknowledge and say, okay, I feel guilty. It's normal to feel this way. I'm not a bad person. Okay. The second thing is, all right, let me sit down and think, how can I be creative and think outside the box? And the box would be your family circle. And then start by trying to think about other folks. Again, you know, sometimes it may get to the point if you're feeling very, you know, your sleep is disturbed, you're very fatigued, your appetite's disturbed, all of those things that really have uh, an impact on your psychosocial health. It may have been time to go out and, and speak to someone. Um, that can be supportive, whether it be um, one of your ministers or pastors or priests, or whether it be someone like a psychotherapist or social workers who are trained. Cancer Care has trained social workers that can also speak with you and give you some ideas and help you cope with some of these feelings. So I think I, I, don't, I think at this point, if you've, tr- you've been doing this, you realize your family's not helping except to come in and be the good guys and, and have the fun and then leave you to do the work, it's time to start thinking about yourself and what are the other resources that you can turn to. Absolutely, and I know we definitely would recommend that um, you would contact uh, Cancer Care, BCAN, and actually um, at Cancer Care you talk to one of our oncology social workers and really talk to them on the phone about how you're feeling and some options that you might have and really to kind of strategize, you know, things that you can do along the lines of what Dr. Palos has suggested, um, but also how to put them in place and and really um, – you know, and then and then, so that's really important for you to have that support. And I know Beacon, uh, Stephanie, if you want to say something about that as well, has uh, the peer-to-peer network, which might be very helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment on that as well, on the peer-to-peer for, um, right, as well? Sure. Yes, that's part of our survivor-to-survivor network. And so again, if you're really looking to talk to somebody who's really worn the sneakers that you're wearing right now, as you walk down this very challenging path, we can certainly try to connect you with one of our trained volunteers 
And again, it's really inspiring that our Inspire community has so many caregivers, and they do talk about these issues very often because the patients might not be involved. Their their significant loved one who's the patient might not be involved. So in a way, it does give them an opportunity to kind of vent a little bit about some of the challenges that they face. So there are numbers of different things out there. And again, there's lots of good resources when you look at our webinars that we have archived on our website. They're there in video form in short segments as well as in transcripts. So you can print it out. Maybe you could print a, a copy out and send it to somebody in your family to say, hey, look, I'm feeling this stress. They, they talk about it here in this webinar. And how can we work together so that we're more engaged in everybody helping to care for mom or whoever the patient happens to be? Awesome. Thank you. Um, so and just as Dr. Campbell mentioned, there's a waiting room where people share information so much. Patients, of course, will talk to each other or if the caregivers are with them. Um, that indeed um, we're also hearing that there are these other networks um, of support um, um, that are kind of virtual. They're, caregiver, they're for caregivers and um, that actually can um, help each other. And there are also support groups that can give you tips of, of how to do things. And, and, and it's not that you can't come up with them, but it's always nice to have other voices to hear um, who are walking again in your same steps as you are. Um, so another question um, and I'm going to address this question um, uh, for um, let me, the question is, my wife and I have been feeling isolated since her diagnosis of bladder cancer. She isn't able to get out of the house for long. And we're not getting invites anymore from friends who we consider close. Um, and so, um, and, the, and my wife always was the social butterfly. Um, so what can I do to help her feel better? So I'm going to ask... Um, if Dr. Palos wants to weigh in on this one and your thoughts about that. Oh, that that is um, challenging. You know, I think one of the things to do would be to maybe both of you sit down and just talk about perhaps there were some times that the message they your friends may have received was, you know, we don't we at this time we don't want to socialize. At this time we don't feel comfortable. So if you go through that, because, you know, when you were really going through the acute disease phase and the treatment and everything, you may have been too busy to go and see friends and visit and socialize and all of that. But that time has passed. So one of the things you can do is just make a phone call to one of the friends in the group that you have, and the one that you know is the one that's kind of like the telephone, and just say, you know, we're ready to get back with everyone again. You know, things have gone um forward, things are you know, a little more settled than when we were in active treatment, you know, what kinds of things are going on. So it may be that you're going to have to make the first move and let folks know, okay, this time, that time was at that time and we couldn't do it, but now we're ready. Um, and then explain also that there were some parameters that maybe you can go out for an hour or 45 minutes. Maybe it's not going to be the whole day or the camping trips or the fishing trips or whatever it was that you used to do in the past. I think people need to know that you all are ready to get back into the group and that you are ready to socialize again and start having that bond of friendship and support from them again. And, again, if people are asked about these things or asked to help or asked to respond to uh, calls for for help or support, people will respond. They want to be helpful to others and help others. 
and that's such an excellent point. I think sometimes, you know, um, people don't quite know when they can, when they're welcome to come back as friends. And so I think letting them know that, um, that you're now, um, you know, wanting to speak to them, wanting to get together um, and, and getting together may be in a different format than before um, that they may welcome it. You know, people, it's an interesting phenomenon that none of us are really, many people are not, a train from childhood has had to deal with when someone isn't well or not feeling well. It's the unique person who perhaps is. And so I think that there's a learning curve. And although there, and so I think sometimes um, I know a lot of our people living with, uh, with cancers will say that they have to almost um, help their friends to come back on, on, on track again. And sometimes one does meet new friends along the way too um, during the treatment um, in waiting rooms, um, you know, during doctor visits, you may co- connect with other people as well. That you may find people who weren't as close to you and somehow become closer during that time as well. Um, and we have another question, um, and this one is for Dr. Campbell. Um, Dr. Campbell, my good friend was diagnosed with stage two urothelial carcinoma. The recommendation, recommended treatment is two transurethral resections. We were told this is a standard treatment. We are in Fort, Fort Worth, Texas. Is it worth it to get a second opinion? So could you comment, Dr. Campbell, about second opinions and, um, how, and how one considers getting them? And um, that would be really helpful, I think. Yeah, I, I would compl- I would absolutely recommend getting a second opinion because um, stage two bladder cancer, uh, based on the definition, means that it's muscle invasive, and the uh, national and international um, consensus guidelines are to consider um, either uh, removal of the bladder, um, and typically uh, we give chemotherapy before depending on several risk factors, or chemotherapy and radiation to the bladder, which is promoted at some centers, um, only in patients who are not uh, surgical candidates or are too ill to consider those choices um, are patients that we typically uh, will uh, recommend doing the, the procedure that's been recommended. And so I think having a, a, another pair of eyes um, on your loved one in terms of reevaluating, especially at a place that does a lot of bladder cancer work, uh, would be a very good idea. Excellent. And I know people often are hesitant to get a second opinion. Can you comment on that, reluctance or concern about that? Yeah, and it, it's interesting. My, my uncle actually went through this where he had a, an issue with his heart valve, and he um, was seen in Michigan and was told uh, by uh, a, a local cardiothoracic surgeon that he needed to have his valve replaced. And he then, I, I spoke with him and spoke to some colleagues who are up in that area, and they recommended seeing a, a specific surgeon um, at an academic center, and he was able to make an appointment, and he was still having second thoughts about which opinion to take, and he ended up going with the the expert who was able to repair his valve and not have to give him an artificial valve and he's recovered very well from that, and we're very happy. But I, I think a lot of, you know, there's this relationship that patients form with their doctors, and they almost feel like they're disrespecting a doctor if they go seek a second opinion. Um, what I would say is, you know, I have patients that I see here at MD Anderson that seek second opinions, 
at uh, other centers across the country and at times across the world. And I'm never offended if a patient wants to have another set of eyes give them what they think would be their best option. And so um, I, I, I think having second opinions can really help, especially when you have uh, a complex uh, cancer type that requires very uh, skilled therapy to treat it the best way possible. Excellent. Thank you. And we do have a phone question. Um, Ayala? Yes. Our telephone question comes from Yvonne B. Your line is now open. Yes, I was wondering, um, are any of you familiar with the blue light? I can't remember the official name that they call it, but when my husband with his, uh, he's got the papillary urothelial carcinoma high grade, and until they used the blue light at one hospital he went to, they didn't know how much cancer he had, so it went from two tumors to 70%, the bladder all full of cancer. I was wondering, are you familiar with that, and is that pretty good, that blue light? Dr. Campbell, can you comment on that? Yeah, that's that's really the world um, of urology. And again, I'm a medical oncologist as opposed to a urologist. Um, the blue light technology, the goal is to be able to pick up more uh, potential cancer that you can't see as well with the traditional white light that's used during a cystoscopy. And there there is some emerging literature that it is better than just doing traditional white light cystoscopy but I, I will have to uh, defer that question to a urologist because that's it's really not my realm of expertise. And do you think it's actually standard of care or it is actually in a clinical trial or it's actually... Um... It has been evaluated in recent clinical trials. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, at this time, um, many centers in the United States specifically do offer blue light technology. I know we, we mm -hmm. do use it here uh, under mm -hmm. certain circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. And we, you know, have a number of experts in our urology department that can answer that question in great detail. Uh, but there are many countries around the world and, and many offices that don't have blue light uh, technology. And I don't necessarily think that um, it's, it's providing hugely inferior care by not having that technology. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you. Well, I want to say I want to thank our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. Um, actually, uh, I want to thank you all for being on the call. I want to thank all of you who've been on this call as well, all the participants um, asking such great questions, both on our last telephone question as well. And I want to thank all of you who've been listening. Now, I know there are more questions in queue, so I actually want to actually um, review with you how to get your questions answered if you have more questions and didn't quite get them answered. So we never want to um, sidestep your healthcare team. Of course, they know the most about you. So definitely, of course, your healthcare team is a wonderful resource for all of you um, to go to. In addition, many of you like to get information from other sources as well so that you can ask more informed questions of your healthcare team or so that you can actually um, also feel more confident in asking questions. So, of course, now on this call, we have the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. So that's a wonderful resource, of course. They're, that, that's their expertise and specialty, and they will help you to frame your questions and ask your questions and have lots of information on their site about um, bladder cancer. Um, we also recommend that people can also call the National Cancer Institute. Their number is 1-800-422-6237. And they also have um, a website, um, www.cancer.gov. That's a wonderful place to go to. It has um, 
uh, both a, and it has a live chat feature on their website where you can post a question, almost like the question that was just asked now about the blue light. You can post that question, and they will research and get you all the answer, answers that you'd want about that. Um, so you can just feel more informed. And it does come from the National Cancer Institute, so it's a wonderful resource for questions. And again, um, we do recommend that you try to go to very credible sites to get information. That's important. Um, um, so that because sometimes you might be tempted to go somewhere that they may not have the best information for you. Um, and um, we also, of course, collaborate with many other cancer organizations, the American Cancer Society, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and there's just so many listed. We'll be sending you that list tomorrow. But you can actually um, you know, contact those places for information um, that, you, that you want to get more information in terms of questions that you may have. Um, most importantly, as we're about to conclude the call, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of a really huge community of support here um, and um, to really take advantage of all those resources. And just to, again, call out to the fact that um, at Cancer Care, we do have oncology social workers who are there to answer your questions, um, to help um, provide you with information, um, to actually um, to, to um, have you, uh, you know, become involved in a support group if that would be helpful to you, um, to get some practical and financial assistance. So all of those things are available. And BCAN has a wonderful peer-to-peer program. It has wonderful other programs that you can access as well. So just feel that you have all these resources in your pocket, and at any time you can contact them. I also want to put a special call out to the American Cancer Society because they have a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year call center that you can call any time of the day or night. Their number is 1-800-227-2345. And their website is www.cancer.org. So again, any time that you may have a question or a concern, um, you can contact them. Again, they are open 365 days a year. Um, their call center is open and also um, you know, uh, 24 hours a day. So it's kind of a nice resource just to have in your back pocket to always know that's there for you. Again, I want to thank you very much for your participation today, um, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. And I know that the, the uh, weather is very different in different parts of the country. Um, uh, New York City right now is in the midst of a huge snowstorm. Other parts of the country are warm and lovely, and, and of course other places have all sorts of other variants of weather. So I want to encourage you all to stay safe and, and, and warm and, uh, and take very good care. Um, thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.